The following audio is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that this recording will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Well, we're going to uh, take time now to, uh, to come before the Lord and we're going to be in, in His Word. If you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Exodus chapter 32. Otherwise, you can just follow along on the screen. I'm going to be reading this morning from Exodus 32, verses 1 through to 10. And God's word this morning says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves." They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is the word of the Lord. Allow me to lead us in a short prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, Lord, we pray that you might just open up our eyes to see the things that you would have us understand and know, not only about you, but about ourselves but also, Lord, about uh, the provision, your wonderful provision in your salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, Lord, in the ways in which we, as your people, should actually honour you and live according to your ways. Lord, there's much for us to learn in this passage this morning, this morning, but most importantly, we pray that you might indeed stir our affections for you and for your Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Lord, that you might indeed help us to uh, have as our priority in our lives, your, your holiness and your glory. For we ask it for this sake and for the sake of our Saviour, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we continue on in our series in Exodus. We're nearly uh, coming to the end of this series. We've only got a couple of weeks to go in that. Uh, we're going to be uh, focusing today particularly on this, on this passage. And although I read only the, uh, the first 10 verses, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter together. Of course, the, uh, the passage, uh, as I said, is, is part of this whole Exodus series. Uh, the whole focus of this series has been on you know, looking at, you know, we are a forgetful people, but God is a faithful God. The events recorded for us in this chapter in Exodus almost defy belief. 
These people had experienced firsthand the power and the majesty and the glory, something of the, the, the amazing awesomeness of God. And they had been recipients of God's favour and grace. I mean, this same God had, had chosen them to be his people. He'd brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He'd led them through the wilderness. He'd fed them. He'd given them water. He'd brought them to this mountain and had entered into a covenant relationship with these people. They were going to be his people and he was going to be their God. It was kind of like a, a marriage, if you like, between God and the people of Israel. I mean, what an incredible and amazing privilege to know that you have been chosen by God, called out from among all the nations as his special and treasured possession. Of course, the only things demanded of the people, of, of the people by God were that, uh, that they would obey him and that they would be faithful to him. And why wouldn't they want to do that? For after all, especially knowing that God was actually seeking to bless them. He had their good at heart. However, as we read the opening verse here in Exodus 32, we hear these words. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, that is where he was meeting with God on behalf of the people, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And as we read the next several verses, recount the sin, the, the great and grievous sin of the people as they actually rebel against this gracious and loving and merciful God. In these verses, we see how Aaron, at their demand, Aaron, who is sort of like second in charge, if you like, has, used the, uh, has called on the people to, to hand over the gold earrings, the gold earrings which have been the same gold things that they would have received from the Egyptians when they left that land where God had allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. They had received this gold from God's hand, so to speak, and they were using this gold to fashion an idol to worship instead of worshipping God. That the people, you know, as they come together, they ask Aaron to, uh, to fashion this gold idol. You know, we're uncertain, if, you know, as to what the people are sort of thinking here. I mean, as we read in the passage, the people speak about, uh, you know, being, you know, talking about the gods, that they wanted the gods, the gods to go before them. And Aaron fashions this golden calf, this statue of this golden calf. And of, um, we sort of might have a lovely, cute little calf sort of image in mind, but it was more, probably more so the image of a bull, a young bull and uh, in those days and in that culture particularly bulls were used as uh, as imagery of of worshiping the gods but also it was considered by some that the god, the gods would actually ride on these bulls it would kind of be a, a kind of a platform on which the, the the gods would actually would actually rest and so we sort of see a bit of a, 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 an idea here of the people of Israel sort of worshipping this golden calf as well as God. And so they're sort of combining God and this other God in their worship. And so we call that sort of like a syncretism, a combining of worship, if you like. Regardless of, of the people's intentions, though, the fact was that they had broken God's commands. The commands that God had given them, the Ten Commandments, particularly the first three, the people had broken those commands uh, you know, within a matter of, of days of receiving the commandments. 
And in doing so, they had rejected God, they'd rejected his authority, they'd rejected his love and his goodness and his grace. I mean, it's staggering, isn't it, to think that they would do that? considering that they are still camped even at the foot of the mountain there at Sinai, even at this point, and that God's presence would have been even visible to them there at the, 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 uh, the smoke and the fire on top of the mountain. All they needed to do was lift their eyes and see God. I mean, what were these people thinking? And yet what we see in them is something that is common to all of us. I mean, we are all sinners and idolaters. That is, we all innately have this desire to be our own God, to be the sole determiner of what is right and what is wrong and what is, what is good and what is pleasing to us. Notice what led the people to demand Aaron build this idol for them. It was because they had grown impatient and frustrated at the fact that Moses had delayed in coming down from the mountain. And Moses, and and therefore in the people's minds, God was not acting in a way that pleased them or in a way that seemed acceptable or appropriate to their way of thinking. And folks, this is the fundamental root of all sin. It is putting ourselves in the place of God and judging him according to our standards and our ways and our knowledge. As pastor and author Paul Tripp states in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, sin is about self-autonomy, self-sufficiency and self-focus. By the way, if you're looking for a good book to read during uh, these uh, time of restrictions, I uh, certainly highly recommend uh, this book for you. You know, one of the most effective tools that Satan uses in turning people away from God, apart from trying to convince us that God isn't, you know, that he isn't real, that he doesn't exist in the first place, is to try and make us, to be, try and make us believe that God himself is not good. In fact, rather that he's the opposite, that he's malicious and he's vindictive. Also, Satan you know, tries to convince us that God doesn't care about us or about our lives, that, that in some ways God is aloof or distant. But also the Satan also you know, sort of wants us to, to think that you know, redefining God's word you know, to suit ourselves is also okay. These are all kinds of ways Satan uses to get us to rebel and reject and, uh, uh, God. Now, it's, I find it interesting how God destri- describes the behavior of the people here in verse 7. You know, in speaking to Moses and telling him what the people were up to, God says, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted themselves. And, folks, that's it. Sin corrupts. In fact, sin not only corrupts, it degrades, and sin ruins. I mean, you only need to turn on the TV news or read a newspaper just to see the, uh, the effects, the, the drastic and, and, and devastating effects of sin in our world today. You know, back in the previous verse, verse 6, we read that it, as the people worshipped and as they sacrificed to the golden calf, they ate and they drank, and we read that they rose up to play. 
It's a funny kind of a phrase that that they rose up to play, and it, it's not as though the people got up and they, you know, enjoyed a ga- you know, a, you know, games and things like that. But more so, what it's saying here is that these people got drunk, and that they threw off all inhibitions and they did all kinds of sexually immoral acts. I mean, what we see here is self-indulgence and debauchery on an incredibly grand scale. And God's response is swift. For he tells Moses in verse 9, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. So what we see here is indeed the right and just response of a holy God to sin. Our sin deserves God's judgment and his punishment. His, his perfect holiness and righteousness demand it. You know, when, when people break the law, we expect them, you know, in, our, in our land, we expect them to be punished, especially if it impacts us personally. If, a, if someone was to steal from us, if someone was to injure us, cause personal injury to us or a loved one, we would expect, in fact, we would even demand that that person be judged and prosecuted and punished. We would be angry if that person escaped that punishment, wouldn't we? And yet, when we break God's laws, should we expect that he should just forgive us and turn a blind eye to our sin? You know, the sin of the people here, of Israel, here in this passage, places them in incredibly great danger. God is intent on pouring out his holy wrath on them. And our sin, too, also places us in great danger, for we, too, are under God's judgment and his wrath. Listen to God's words through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 9. Speaking prophetically about the day when God will judge all mankind, Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, All hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labour. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. For behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy his sinners from it. You know, just as there was nothing that the the people of Israel could do to avert God's wrath upon them, we too are helpless to save ourselves. We need someone to do it for us. We see that here in this passage because at this particular point when God is ready to, to pour out his hot anger against the people, we see Moses step into the breach and enter God's mediator. You know, when God says to Moses in verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against the people, he's effectively saying that if Moses uh, you know, does just step aside and allow God to, to punish these people, then that's exactly what's going to happen. But, but he's inviting Moses to step into the breach here and actually to, uh, to, to, to perhaps act on behalf of the people. 
I think it appears that God is in some way testing Moses' integrity, not as a leader, but also as, as part of the nation of Israel, that, uh, that he would test his integrity and heart for the people. I can't but see here an image of, uh, of not only Moses' love for the people, but, but it's a, a reflection of a, how we as Christians should also view those around us who are destined to, to be recipients of the, the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God, that we too should be willing to, to step into that breach, so to speak, to, to bring them before God, to proclaim the gospel to them, that they might turn from their sin and turn towards God and receive his salvation through faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ. You know, Moses, it's interesting that, uh, you know, he could have profited incredibly from this point because God says, look, Moses, I'm going to wipe the people out and I'll start afresh with you. I mean, there's great gain for Moses here if he thinks about it. I mean, let's face it too. I mean, Moses had endured a lot of grief from these people. He had endured a lot of personal attack and a lot of grumbling against him and against his leadership. Yet there is also more that is going on here in this passage. Because not only does God want to see Moses' heart for the people, more importantly, God wants to see Moses' heart for his glory, for God's glory. Look at how Moses intercedes in in the next verses. For he implores God, not on the basis of the people, but on the basis of God's character and reputation. We see that in verses 11 to 14 where he says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Folks, we see here that, uh, you know, in light of Moses' words, we're told that God relents from bringing disaster on the people, from wiping them out. And of course, this opens up a whole discussion, if you like, about of how our prayers can intercede on behalf of others and how that fits in with the sovereignty of God. But unfortunately, that's something for, we'll have to leave for another day, perhaps a third Monday night talk, Bill, in the, uh, in the future. It's uh, an incredible topic to, uh, to discuss. But as we come back to this passage, we see that upon return to the camp, Moses is furious at what he sees and he throws down the tablets, breaking them on the ground. You look look at that in verses 15 and following. We see Moses coming back down. And as he reaches the camp, he just he throws the uh, the, the 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 testimony, the, uh, the 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 Ten Commandments, the stone that has been actually engraved by the very finger of God. Moses throws on the ground, and it and it breaks, symbolizing how the people have, in their rebellion, have broken the covenant with God. And Moses confronts Aaron, who he'd left in charge. And, and it's interesting to hear Aaron's excuse in verses 21 to 24. Let me read them to you. It says, And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf by some miraculous, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, yeah, some miracle. Here's what we see. Here's where we see the, the, the incredible effects of how sin changes us. First of all, sin causes us to, to blame others for our sin. It's a classic thing. We see it in the garden where Eve, when she was confronted by God, she blamed the serpent. And we see it ourselves in our day-to-day lives. We see that, uh, that when we sin, we're so often looking to shift the blame to others. But not only that, you know, our sin makes us fools as well. No matter you know, how many times we sin, we can sometimes come up with excuses to justify our sin that are absolutely ludicrous, that make no sense whatsoever. We do this because we're afraid and we, we just want to protect our own uh, autonomy as much as we possibly can and think that we can shift the blame to others. But God will hold us all to account. It's interesting, again, how Moses describes the sin of the people in verse 25. It says that they broke loose. And the image here is this kind of a breaking loose from chains. It's a throwing off of all restraint, which is something which our culture strives after, isn't it? Our, the, the God of our culture today is freedom. We want to throw off all that hinders us, all that restrains us. We want this freedom for ourselves. And we will do whatever we can. We want to be who we want to be. We want to to do what we want to do. And we want to go after what we want to go after in order to please ourselves. But folks, the, the, the tragedy is and the reality is that our sin always leads to anarchy and chaos. It's interesting that you know many people today view that you know the thing that hinders them the most, particularly you know perhaps in a country like ours, Western nations, is things like religion and uh, and laws, and particularly the Word of God. But Proverbs twenty nine eighteen has something to say about that. It says this: It says, without revelation, without God's revealed ways, without God's Word, people run wild. But one who follows divine instruction will be happy. You know, what we see in this passage is, you know, Moses then having confronted Aaron, having seen all that was going on, he, he, he issues this clarion call to the people. And he says, to, he says there in, um, in uh, sorry, just pick it up here. It picks up in, uh, in verse 26. And it says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who is on the Lord's side? Of course, in that state, it was a call to come back to God. It was an opportunity for the people to to realize their foolishness, to realize their rebellion, to realize their sin, and, and an opportunity to repent and admit that they had rebelled against God, to seek forgiveness and to be reconciled to him. You know, it's the same call that God issues time and time and time again through Scripture. 
Joshua 24, 15, where, you know, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Joshua, you know, says to the people, he says, you know, choose for this day whom you will serve, either the gods of the other nations or our God. He says, you know, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see it in, the, uh, in, in, in Elijah in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel and he issues this call to the people who are standing there and he says, you know, stop going backwards and forwards between the God of Israel and all these other gods. Choose once and for all and stay and stick to one or the other. Was Jesus himself in Mark 1, 14, verse 15, when he commenced his public ministry, the whole uh, um, emphasis of his message was this, repent and believe the good news, the good news about God's kingdom, his coming kingdom that has been revealed in Jesus. And again, in, in Acts 2.38, the, um, the Apostle Peter, in that wonderful sermon in the, given there at Pentecost in Jerusalem, calls the people to repent and believe. In Acts, in, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, as he gives that wonderful uh, message there in, uh, at Athens, he says this, You know, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying here, God has fixed a day of judgment. And we can be sure and certain of that because he is going to judge the world through his son, the Lord Jesus. And he raised Jesus from the dead as ruler and judge over all, but also as a guarantee that that day of judgment is going to come. And so this call, this clarion call of Moses, who is on the Lord's side come to me, is a call that we all need to heed today and to be thankful for. To be thankful that God would be gracious enough to give us opportunity to realize and recognize our sin, to admit our need for him and for his salvation. It's never too late, folks. It's never too late. It's a call, though, that comes at a personal cost. Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you want to follow after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, you need to lay down your life, lay down our own ways, our own plans, our own desires, our own passions, and instead seek to follow after God and, 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 and have his glory and his purposes and his ways as first and foremost in our minds. This call to come, you know, who is on the Lord's side is also a call to trust God and to trust his character, to be committed, as I said, to his holiness and to his glory. It's interesting here in this passage, it was the Levites who would answer that call. They, they obey God and are used by God then as instruments in carrying out his purposes. In this case, we see it as judgment in verse 27. And because of their obedience and faithfulness, God bestows on them a blessing, which we read in verse 20, 29, where it says, And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. For those 
who truly seek to, to come to God, to be for God, to surrender themselves to the sovereignty of God and to the purposes of God. God promises great blessing upon us. You know, God refrains, as I said, from destroying all the Israelites in this particular case. You know, he could have wiped them all out. That was God's intent. But through Moses' prayer and because of God's mercy, we see that, uh, that he needs the people to know that sin is serious and it carries with it devastating con- con- consequences. And so instead of wiping all out, he says there are a number, about 3,000 men of the people fell that day, were killed by the sword. We see that in verse 28. Like sin, it carries with it serious and devastating consequences, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Because if our sins are not dealt with and are not paid with before God, then we, can ne- we cannot hope to be in the presence of God once this life is over. This passage concludes with Moses interceding again on behalf of the people. He tells the people that they have sinned a great sin in verse 30. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Because this reminds us again that sin must be paid for if there is to be forgiveness. And Moses himself actually offers to die, to be blotted out of God's book in the place of the people so that they themselves might not be blotted out. We see something similar that the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 9 when he speaks of, of the nation of Israel. He'd rather that you know, they come to a saving faith, but if, if, if God would deem it, Paul would gladly give up his life in order that they would receive eternal life, that he would miss out on their behalf. What a wonderful and incredibly uh, um, sacrificial approach that Moses takes here on behalf of the people, that he would be willing to give his life in their place. Of course, what is being, being spoken of here is a reference uh, when he speaks about you know, being blotted out of God's book. There, back in that day, the, the kings of the day would have the names of all their subjects recorded, all those people who would belong to their kingdom. And so it's, it's picturing God's eternal kingdom and those who will be part of it, all who belong to God's family. And, and Moses saying, I want these people to be part of that, Lord. And, it, and if it means me not being a part of that, I'm willing to lay down my life for them. For only if, you, if you'd only save them. And God tells Moses to continue to lead his people and that he will hold off his judgment for the time being, but there will come a day when he will hold them to account. Look in, uh, in verse 32. But now if you will forgive their sin, this is Moses speaking, but if not, Lord, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go and lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. God tells Moses to continue to lead his people, that he will hold off his judgment for the time being. But he says there will come a day when he will hold them to account. And as a reminder of their sin, God sends this plague on the people. 
Even though Moses had offered to atone, to pay for the people's sin, his offer is not enough. It's not enough. His sacrifice could never pay for the people's sin because Moses himself was imperfect. And the plague shows that the people that the, 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 that uh, shows the people that God's wrath has not been fully placated. Placated. There it is. I got it out eventually. Has not been properly placated. It's meant to point them to a better mediator, someone who can fully satisfy God's righteous judgment and wrath, and free them from it. And this, of course, is what Jesus did on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 12 says, That as he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And in 1 Peter 2.24, it says that he, again, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Folks, Jesus is indeed the perfect mediator, God's perfect mediator. It is only him and him alone who is able to pay for our sins and to secure for us our forgiveness for our sins and eternal life with God. And so we need to remember as we, as we close out this passage this morning that we need that perfect mediator ourselves. We need to heed the warning and the challenge that comes to us from this passage today. You know, the Apostle Paul, reflecting back on this passage, has to say this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Now these things, that is recounting these particular events, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as those people did, as the Israelites did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. There, Paul is quoting this exact passage. And then in verse 11 he says, Again, now these things happened to them as an example for us, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Folks, if we think we can stand today that God is not going to hold us accountable for our sin, we need to think again, take heed, you know, if we think we stand, lest we fall. We are not to be stiff-necked. We are not to be unwilling to bow our heads and our hearts and our lives before God and submit to him and to his ways. We're not to think that we can rebel against God and his ways and think that he will not hold us accountable. No, instead we are to worship him above all else and to remember that God has moved towards us in his mercy and grace and kindness. He made the first move. His intentions and purposes for us are for our good and for his glory. And it's only in trusting him and obeying him that real blessing comes to us in our lives and in the life to come. And so as we close, Moses' question comes afresh to us today. Who, who is on the Lord's side? 
Are you on the Lord's side today? Have you come to that point in your, in your life of realising that you need a saviour to pay for your sins, that you stand even now under the judgement and the condemnation of God and that without, without Jesus, that you're, you, are, you are destined for an eternity in hell of suffering and torment? God says today, return to me. Who is on the Lord's side? If you're a Christian today and you say, I am on the Lord's side, but you might have been wavering a bit here and there, God says to us afresh today, you know, it's not too late to turn back, to submit ourselves, to to no longer be those stiff-necked people, but to say, I am on the Lord's side, to draw that line in the sand and say that, God, you and your glory is my desire. Lord, stir up that affection in our hearts more and more, day by day. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this passage this morning, and we thank you that you are indeed a God who has moved towards us. Lord, in, in mercy, in grace, in kindness, in love, in compassion, in goodness, in generosity. Lord, you, you know, the Romans reminds us that whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were still in rebellion against you, whilst we still had re- were rejecting you, Lord, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, he is, that is the greatest proof of your love and your good favour towards us. Help us to embrace that. Help us not to, to, to turn away from you, Lord. Help us not to go our own ways and, and to fall and, 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 to be, and, and to end up in, in ruin and destruction and corruption, Lord, but instead to turn to you today. Lord, help us to indeed live for you, to, Lord, to be uh, people who reflect something of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your kindness to those around about us. Lord, help us to indeed uh, be, be so thankful for the grace in which we're able to stand in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we hear that question, who is on the Lord's side? May we in our hearts and by the, the example of our lives confess, Lord, we are on your side. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.